Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Reformed Podmatics. I'm Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And thank you for joining us for this episode that is a different kind of episode because its origin is due to a sermon that I recently preached. We are going to be discussing today Bible translations and maybe a little bit more generally, God's Word. And so this comes on the heels of preaching a sermon from Jeremiah 36, where um, some may recall the story from Jeremiah, where the prophet Jeremiah dictates the word of God to Baruch, his scribe. Baruch writes all these things down, goes to the temple to share the word of God with the people of God, and some officials of the king pull Jeremiah aside, or Baruch aside, and they say, we've got to tell the king these things. They bring God's word on the scroll to Jehoiakim, the king, and he starts cutting it up and throwing it away. And so in that sermon, I talked a lot about how there are those in our world today who want to subtract from the word of God. They uh, perhaps try to edit the word of God to fit their their preconceived theological or political viewpoints, or they may even add to the Word of God like we see in the Mormon Church, where the Book of Mormon is placed alongside Scripture. And so hmm. um, after I had preached that sermon, uh, there, are, there were some people who approached me and said, well, we have these different translations, though, of God's Word, so how can we know where people have edited the Word of God in a way that they shouldn't have, maybe even within a translation that would be generally approved of Hmm. in the Christian Reformed Church or by some Christians. And so I realize this is a big topic, and it's not really one that I would cover in a sermon itself, but it is something that's important for Christians to know about. Yeah, the big question here is, how do I hear God speaking? How how can I trust this Bible? Yeah, if God has revealed himself, I want to listen, and I want to hear and receive it uh, in its purest form. I don't want to have there be uh, any mistakes or corruptions Mm -hmm. in it, and so how can can I trust it? This, at root, is a very important question, because if salvation is accomplished through God revealing himself to us, which is why he gives us his word, then... We want to make sure we're hearing it as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you're needing rescue and uh, you are uh, trying to survive, you you want to make sure that the person who's rescuing you is communicating with you clearly, <laughs> and you are understanding what they are are saying and doing. Uh, and yeah, that they know the way out of danger, so to speak. Right? <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. important that we hear God correctly, so that you can see how this yeah. is a very deep question. Yeah, and so that question came when um, some people had looked at different translations and um, 
they wondered, is this editing God's word? And I would say there are some translations that actually do that. Um, and there, there are many, though, that are very trustworthy and should be received with thanksgiving. So um, yeah. I think the thing that the place we want to all start with is a reverence for the living God and a thankfulness that he would speak to us. That was the main point of the sermon, is we had Jehoiakim as an example of someone who discarded God's word. He was editing it and actually just removing it from his uh, from his mind's eye, quite literally, by uh, throwing it into the fire. And the reason he was doing that is because it confronted something about him that he didn't want uh, to repent of. And mm-hmm. so that's the first question is, do we have a hunger for the Word of God? Do we live like um, Jesus calls us to in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so hopefully um, anyone who is asking this question isn't really asking the question to try to wiggle out of something that God has actually said in his word, because there would be one translation that kind of supports their interpretation or their preference. Hmm. Um, that's a bad spirit to approach the conversation from, is just a desire to do kind of what I want to do, and maybe I can find a translation that will say what I want it <laughs> to say. Um, so That's a good point. So hopefully we would approach the conversation in faith. Um, yeah, we yeah. move... Um, from glory to glory, we uh, approach God in faith, and when we do that, our faith grows. And um, and when we do that, I, I do believe our faith will grow when we, of course, read His Word. So um, it's important to understand a little bit in this conversation that a very simple truth, which is undebatable, that the Bible was not originally written in English. I know that there no are way. some there are some Babylon B articles, Babylon B is satire, that kind of mocks how many King James only people will essentially almost say the word of God is meant to be written in English oh, in the King James version. Yeah, and that becomes the standard text. And yeah. It's almost to the point for some people, this is not a lot of people, but I think it's some the people, Pensacola school or something like that. Yeah, if you want to read God's word and you speak Spanish, well, unfortunately, you'll have to learn English so you can King read James. old. You can read, yeah, the King James. You can read yeah. the authorized version. Right, and it, it sounds crazy, but there are actually King James only um, people who would say that is the word of God. And they don't just mean that communicates the Word of God to us faithfully. They mean the Word of God is in English, and it is the King James Version of the Bible. And so that's one insane extreme that hopefully nobody listening would actually believe anything like that. Um, If you want to... If you want to see a great confrontation of that theology, there's a debate between a man named James White mm-hmm. and a very crazy pastor named Stephen Anderson. <laughs> and um, you could look it up on YouTube it's, if you're interested in it, but James White does a very good job um, showing that yeah. that Stephen Anderson's King James-only theology is, is a house of cards that is easily toppled. And so, anyways, um, there are 
of course, translations of the Bible yeah. from original Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew and a small section in Aramaic. Parts mm-hmm. of the book of Daniel are in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And so we're working with translations. So and, and yeah, what translations involve interpretation. Yeah, what translations are out there? There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then wh- why do we have the different translations? Well, we can be thankful we have them. First of all, we would want to say yeah. uh, some people, I think this is a thread of the King James only crowd, is that they're worried that there are these different translations that they think conflict with one another. But I would say in the mm. same way, we can be kind of thankful in some way for denominations. We can be mm-hmm. thankful for translations that that people are trying to work out who God is and how we can best worship Him and how we can best know Him. And so um, while there would be some translations that are really good for academic study, like the New American Standard Bible, mm-hmm. um, and other translations that are really good for children, um, like I would say um, in our family, we like the Christian Standard Bible, formerly called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Mm-hmm. It's a really good, accessible and plain language um, translation. Um, there, there are these different translations that are still faithful, mm-hmm. um, but also helpful um, in communicating who God is and what He's done. So um, I, I would say we should be thankful, um, but also we should keep our minds open. Like the New Testament scholar Don Carson says, we should be open-minded but not empty-headed. So we can be open-minded with regards to using different translations of the Bible that are helpful, um, but not empty-headed in thinking um, that this translation is the only way to understand God's Word, and so I've got to reject anything, even one word that would be a little bit different from it. Yeah, so the... I like to say to people when they ask, well, which translation is the best? Well, there's lots of really good translations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I study and when I really want to dig into a passage, I will often pull out several translations. I'll pull out my ESV, my NIV, my NASB, mm-hmm. um, my NLT, the New Living Translation, which is a more... You could say reader friendly, almost. It's yeah. It's almost. It's so uh, simplified that it's paraphrased. Sometimes a little too much, but it can be very helpful in enlightening uh, difficult passages. Um, There's the message, which is interesting. (laughs) I I don't think of this really as a translation per se. It's more like a commentary. Mm -hmm. It will sometimes shine light. It will sometimes make things more confusing, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. Um, Particularly it, with the Psalms, I find there. Yeah. It, um, it can be helpful, but it's not always helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I I worked at a Christian bookstore for a year, and people would come in asking about Bible translations, and um, the most helpful categories that we can think of are a word for word. Yep. So that is basically as close to the original language in its language as possible. Yeah, these are known as wooden translations. Yeah, and so the New American Standard Bible is the most word-for-word English translation. And there you have 
um, a, a word that will be rendered in English and the sentence will be fixed for grammar. But other than that, mm -hmm. that's pretty much how the translation works. Mm -hmm. And um, in the, moving a little bit on the continuum away from just a word for word, you would have what is sort of called a dynamic equivalent translation. Mm -hmm. And these are more like your English standard and a little bit further down the line, the NIV mm -hmm. um, and RSV. Those translations try to communicate uh, the intention or the teaching of a story or psalm or law um, or, or theological point by, of course, using as many of the word-for-words as possible within a sentence, but also sort of combining that to reflect the intention of mm -hmm. the author. Yeah. Um, and so some people would get very worried when they hear that kind of description about a translation because when we start to say words like interpretation, then hmm. that involves a human element. Yep. And, and so if you can't read Greek or Hebrew, you do have to recognize your translation involves interpretation. Hmm. And, and so you are reading it through essentially the interpretation of the translators for what those words meant. Again, people get worried about that, but we can be thankful that God communicated his word um, powerfully, clearly, creatively, in a way that people can understand and translate. We certainly would reject the attitude of um, the, the Muslims, which says, if you want to know the, the Muslim word of God, the Quran, yeah. you need to learn Arabic. And yeah. actually, a translation is not technically allowed in Islam. You've got to learn Arabic if you want to be a, a truly pure yeah. Muslim person. Yeah. And so we don't go that direction as Christians. And Christians have never gone that direction. Yeah. And so while it is good to know Greek and Hebrew, um, you can trust that God's word can be communicated in English to you. Because God is providential over his word. Yeah, absolutely. God wants to communicate to us. And so we shouldn't be worried about our, our Bibles not being the original language. We shouldn't make... We shouldn't think, therefore, that our Bibles are not trustworthy. Yeah, uh, we should realize that God superintends everything, and God, God wants you to hear Him, and so God can make you hear. He can make you <laughs> hear Him in your language. Yeah, um, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't get overly concerned. Um, so, well, there's the wonderful story about Pentecost. That's exactly that. That's that's true. You have the apostles going out preaching the gospel and people understanding in their own languages and there it was a miracle that they understood in their own languages but um i think we can certainly glean from that story that god wants to be known in various languages yeah it's it's pretty plain actually as a part yeah of the teaching and even of that story. From, right from the beginning the, the jews translated their Hebrew scriptures, which again were yeah. mostly in the language of Hebrew, but partly in Aramaic, a very small portion in Daniel. They translated this into Greek by, uh, I think it was a couple hundred years before Christ came yep. around. I don't know exactly when. Yep. But that, that translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek is called the Septuagint. And so even they recognized that the, 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 these scriptures could be translated. And mm -hmm. in fact, 
a lot of the New Testament authors, when they quote from the Old Testament, are quoting from this Greek translation, yeah. the Septuagint. And so right. the apostles recognize that translation is okay. It is good. Yeah, which is, it's kind of important that we establish that, because at times, uh, pastors and scholars can make it sound mm-hmm. like every translation is a perversion of the Word of God. Um, yeah, yep. And we don't want to go that far. We really do want people to trust in their Bibles, trust in uh, the authenticity and um, reliability of the Bible. And so... Um, we could talk about which translations we like. Of course, in our church, we use mm-hmm. the New International Version. Um, this is kind of a complicated thing, actually. The oh, yeah. story of the NIV <laughs> has has been a bit of a, a tangled web over the past um, six years. Since 2014, hmm. the NIV was changed. So in 1984, there's a version released of the NIV that is... Um, that's the one in the pews of most, even was in the pews of just about any evangelical church. Yeah, I grew um, up on it, the NIV eighty four. Yeah, and um, it, that was a good thought for thought translation, um, accessible to people, while also really true to the wording of mm-hmm. the original language, and and so it was a good translation. It was deemed to be very reliable. And in 2014, Zondervan, who um, has the rights to the NIV, changed the translation quite a bit. Um, They had been updating language here and there every once in a while um, in other versions, but Mm -hmm. in 2014, they made a new translation and they put the title NIV onto that new translation. Hmm. And if this is a, right about when I worked actually at the uh, the Christian bookstore where they were sort of struggling with this a little bit. They had a today's New International Version for about oh, yeah. a year or two. Yeah. There's the TNIV, yep. and then that didn't sell very well. So what they ended up doing was using a lot of that TNIV in just the new version of the NIV. And so hmm. there were some good reasons for doing this, and the newer new international version is better in some cases than Hmm. the older NIV. Um, For those, again, who want to read a lot more about this, I highly recommend an article in a publication called Thamelios, which is run by the Gospel Coalition, about uh, just a comparison and an analysis of Hmm. the new, new international version. I forget the name of the man who is reviewing it, but he's a scholar, uh, I believe he's a Baptist. Can we link it in the show yeah, notes? Yeah, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes to the article, and I, I want to say the article is 40 or 50 pages long, it's very thorough, hmm. and it actually gives a thumbs up to the new New International Version. Interesting. And this is from a theologically conservative scholar, and so it, it's from somebody even who is was called a complementarian, who, hmm. which is the idea that... Um, the offices of the church are uh, to be held by by men, um, and so that's a big question for a lot of skeptics of the new yeah, yeah, new yeah. international version. That there is more gender neutral language throughout the Bible, um, for example, where Paul says "brothers" in Romans twelve 
verse 1, brothers, offer yourselves up as living sacrifices. The original NIV would have had brothers. Adelphoi is the Greek word. And the new New International Version, I believe, has brothers and sisters. <laughs> and of course, the thought there is that Paul is saying all believers should offer themselves up as living sacrifices. And so to communicate yeah. that best, he makes it a more gender neutral interpretation. And I would say that's more accurate to the teaching of Romans 12 than mm. just this is an instruction for men to offer themselves up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So yeah. um, so you can see there, sometimes it actually gets more accurate to the teaching by... Um, being less word for by word. By being less word for word, right. Because in the Greek it's one word, but now in, in right. English it's three words, brothers and sisters. So are we adding to it? Are we changing it? Yeah. And in Spanish, it might be ustedes, which yeah. is you all. is more of a general gender-neutral mm-hmm. um, way of putting things. And so uh, we can see there that, again, translation involves interpretation, and yeah. um, at times that is better. At times, maybe the new, new NIV is worse. Yeah. And so um, some of the criticisms are perhaps valid of it, but um, again... If you want to read a lot more about that, we can link you to that article, which which yeah. I found extremely helpful. Because yeah. I approached it personally as being very skeptical. Mm. And um, when I read articles like that one, I became more open to the legitimacy of the translation. Yeah, I can remember a professor in seminary giving us an overview of this and making the case that the NIV, I think it was the 2011 edition, was actually in many ways much more literal and accurate to the original texts than the ESV. Now, it's often held that the ESV is more more of a word-for-word translation than the NIV. Mm-hmm. And so he was making a counter-argument and showing us from several different texts how that's not always exactly the case. Uh, but I, I also think it's helpful to give a sort of spectrum from of word-for-word to, to more loose thought-for-thought. Um, so if we were to plot a spectrum of the major well-known translations, we could say that NASB, the New American Standard, is on the far right of the spectrum. It's very, very wooden and literal. Mm-hmm. Um, beside that, I think a little bit more loose would be the ESV, mm-hmm. and then the uh, New King James Version and the King James Version would be, yes, would be right the about ESV there. And near that, the ESV. And, and, yeah. And then you have the NIV, maybe right right in the middle. Really, especially the 84, the older version, sort of the, uh, probably right down the middle. Yeah. And then you have the NLT, yeah. a little bit more loose and open. The New Century version, which was popular yeah. for a little while, but less so now, would be even more, even less word for word than the NLT. Yeah. Or actually, sorry, I take that back. The, the New Century version is kind of between the New Living translation and the New International version. Okay, for, yeah. Um, so the New Living is very paraphrased. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's probably about as paraphrased as you'd want to get in a Bible. I agree. Use. I I use it sparingly with yeah. youth group. Yeah. In order to explain some difficult passages, um, I will often make it clear that, that it's more of a paraphrased translation. And then really on the far end of that paraphrase would be where the message lands, yeah. which I don't even think Eugene Peterson, the translator of that, meant for that to be seen as a translation in any official way. Yeah, I admit I have 
deep skepticism whenever <laughs> I see someone quoting the message. Yeah, yeah, because me too. <laughs> my, if I'm going to be honest, my thought that crosses my mind was this person is trying to get the Bible to say something that it doesn't say. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And so that maybe that's not true. Maybe it's possible that Eugene Peterson, like for example, if there's some Pauline section of describing the disaster of being a slave to sin. Um, Eugene Peterson will use a lot of very creative language to do that, which could actually be helpful Mm -hmm. for us understanding how terrible sin is. Um, But it's not... It's not really communicating sometimes with the yeah. the um, the punch or the simplicity of a translation of the Bible. It's 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 more, more of flowery. A, it's more it, of a commentary than yeah, a translation. Yeah, and so it can be used, I think, as a helpful commentary in certain places. Um, yeah. But uh, maybe one thing I would also add is is that we're different genres in Scripture sometimes mm. can lend themselves to needing a more word-for-word translation. Like and Paul's letters. Yeah, and, and other places may um, be more translatable and kind of open to um, the interpretation of the translator and how best to communicate something like poetic literature, for example. Psalms. So the ESV, to me, is generally a very good and translation i i'm thankful for it but i find the psalms in the esv to be hmm. very herky-jerky and wooden and Clunky, so yeah. and so at and at one time i preached from the esv on psalm 37 and um psalm 37 talks about a lot a lot about not worrying and the esv will render that as do not worry and the esv renders that as fret not yourselves <laughs> and so it's <laughs> And it, it says that a few times, even through the translation of, maybe that is syntactically a little bit more in line with the original yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. Fret, fret not yourselves, but that's confusing to people, especially to children. Another example would be in Psalm one thirty six, um, where, so we read as a family the Christian Standard Bible uh, after dinner, and Psalm one thirty six in the Christian Standard Bible is. Um, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love is eternal. And it, instead of his love endures forever in the NIV, hmm. which I think is far more poetic and hmm. um, stirring, and yeah. it, it still communicates what the text said, his love endures forever. His love yeah. endures forever. Um, the Christian Standard Bible gives us more of a theological point. His love is eternal. His love is eternal. Hmm. And, and so... Um, I, I like his love endures forever more. I'm not exactly sure what the ESV has on that, but um, but that's where you would see the impact of um, just going word for word, yeah, um, or communicating yeah. what the text is saying with some, uh, I would say, holy creativity. Hmm. So um, it, it's a it's it's debatable. I would be willing to be corrected on my interpretation of the ESV, um, but I've found in my conversations with people that um, there are it, it is rare that someone would be just a just a Hebrew Greek guru, <laughs> just a real solid person who is making this 
this argument from that perspective, hmm. it's to me often a little bit more of a culture war issue, um, yeah. which, hey, it's fine that we want to be sensitive to maybe some efforts to edit the Bible with a political understanding. So I, I yeah. sympathize with them in that regard. We yeah. should be careful about that. Um, but is that necessarily what is happening when a translation is more thought for thought instead of word for word? I don't think that's necessarily what's behind the desire to translate. In a yeah, different so way. we want to say that there are lots of good translations. Yeah. That doesn't mean that every translation is equally good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there may be translations that aren't worth putting much uh, investment into. Yeah. Um, That's a little bit of where I'd get to with the King James Version, where hmm. um, the King James Version, and if anybody is older who's listening to this, you grew up on the King James Bible, um, an approved translation in the Christian Reformed Church for good reason, um, but that was written in the early 1600s, and hmm. the vast, vast majority of manuscripts have been discovered in the last 150 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, not just the majority of manuscripts, but like, I want to say it's something like 90% of manuscripts more, have, yeah. have been discovered in the last 150 years. So, of course, since the King James Bible was written, we've discovered more about um, the original text. Yeah. Um, even in the last 10 years, I believe, uh, part of the manuscript of the Gospel of Mark was found. This is kind of a cool little story. Um, there was a mummy that was unearthed in Egypt, and on the parchment that was used to mummify the body, they used hmm. infrared technology to find that it was a, a, a part of the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> and so they, they used this technology, which of course didn't exist 15 years ago even, much yeah. less 400 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so they discovered just a little, a few verses of the Gospel of Mark, Fragment, yeah. um, which shows actually a lot that it was already in Egypt, and it was yep. very, dated very, uh, one of the earliest dates of a manuscript that's ever been found. And so anyways, the reason I bring that up is, um, in translation, the earlier the better, the earlier the manuscript, the better. It's regarded as more pure, it's less likely to be mistranslated, or, or um, if it's earlier, and um, and also, the the more uh, that it lines up with other manuscripts, the mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And so, with manuscripts that have been discovered, this is a reason to make us thankful for textual criticism and for archaeology. Is the more the Bible actually has been verified to be a reliable document, um, yeah. because as manuscripts are discovered, it's not as though all of a sudden there's two very diverging manuscript traditions that are just very different in how we understand the nature of Christ or the virgin birth or something like that. Hmm. There, the more manuscripts are discovered, the more our current translations are actually found to be verified because um, like with something like the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, hmm. being discovered in, I believe it was the 1950s, uh, and then they're translated and they show the book of Isaiah is extremely well translated because these hmm. um, scrolls contain large portions of the book of Isaiah and our Hebrew text of what we thought was in the original book of Isaiah, Isaiah hmm. is right in line with these Dead Sea Scrolls. And so um, time and again, the Bible has been revealed to be 
reliable because more and more manuscripts are being discovered and they line up with what we have. So why are there verses missing from the Bible? Ah, <laughs> the missing verses. This is something the King James only person will definitely bring oh, yeah. up. And it's, to me, a question not of missing verses in our Bible, but added verses in their Bible. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. The tables have it, been turned. It, that's right. It's a uh, touche, as they say sometimes. <laughs> um, but often the case will be that translators had a text before them, and um, they, they did, of course, the work of translating as best they could. But some of those manuscripts included later editions, uh, particularly right. the, the two big examples in the Gospels are John chapter 8, where you have the woman, the story of the woman caught in adultery, mm-hmm. and just about any recent translation will have brackets yeah. around that story. because You'll, you'll see it visibly. Yeah, it'll, it'll show this is not in the earliest manuscripts, is what it'll often say in the yeah. footnote. And then the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. So yeah, Mark 16, Mark 16 um, after the women encounter the resurrected Christ, they meet him. Um, the story ends in Mark with the women being confused about what to do. Mm-hmm. And later manuscripts added um, sort of the proclamation of the women to the, the disciples and, and then also even a Great Commission type story uh, or um, give it, uh, command from Jesus, but yeah, also yeah, yeah. A, a promise of Jesus that Christians will handle snakes and not be uh, be sort of killed by their venom and they'll drink poison and not be harmed. Mm-hmm. And and so the, that was very, almost certainly, added in later manuscripts. The more manuscripts we discover, the more we find that they, they didn't have that section of Mark. Yeah, I once saw a documentary about some sort of like backwoods Christian sect. Mm. Sort of Snake handlers? That actually yeah, handled yeah. snakes because of that passage, and they thought that it was a mark of holiness if a snake didn't bite you. Yeah, or in a debate that I've seen, an atheist brought a gallon of, like it was um, lighter fluid or something like that. You know, mm. it was something poisonous. And he said, now, according to your Bible, I could, I'm going to drink this and not be harmed. Mm. And in the debate, the... Christians say, well, this is where textual criticism comes into play, where yeah. we believe that that actually is not in the original text of Scripture. Hmm. And um, I would even go so far as to say that the end of Mark 16, because of earliest manuscript evidence, should probably be removed from our modern translations. Hmm. I might not say that with John 8, because we could see, I think, John 8, the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, as a kind of parable. And um, it is being presented as a true story from Jesus' life, and so we should be aware of that. However, what it's, it's teaching us is the compassion of Jesus and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, which is well established in all of the rest of the Gospels. So there's not a problem theologically no, with there, John 8, but there would be maybe a manuscript problem that... Well, if it's not there in the original manuscript yeah. that John wrote, mm-hmm. and in the ones that were translated after it, then 
we have good reason to doubt that it is true. Right. Or that it happened. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, um, I, I've heard some pastors who would say I would never preach John 8 or the conclusion of Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally, I, I think that I would preach from John 8 at, and treat it in my preaching as kind of a parable. Um, and being honest and even maybe teaching in that sermon a little bit about textual criticism and how yeah. um, we want to go to the earliest manuscripts because mm-hmm. uh, that matters. Um, meanwhile, so I'm preaching actually through the Gospel of Mark now. I've, we're taking a break right now to do a different sermon series, but hopefully we will eventually make it all the way through the Gospel of Mark. I will uh, very, very likely conclude my preaching on the Gospel of Mark with, I believe it's verse 9, where hmm. the women encounter the resurrected Christ and are kind of confused about what to do. Yeah, there's also verses um, mm-hmm. around the New Testament that are sometimes missing from more recent translations. Yeah. One that comes to mind for me is John chapter 5, verse 4. If you have the King James or the New King James, which follow what's called the Masoretic tradition of translation or the Masoretic text, um, then you will find verse 4 in there. And in other translations, but in, or in, in other translations, it'll be removed. It'll skip from verse 3 to verse 5, but yeah. in the King James and the New King James, or the NASB as well, it will be in brackets sometimes to show again that this is not there in the earliest translations, which gets us to the point that we want to have as close uh, translations that we can to the actual words that were mm-hmm. written by the apostles and those who wrote under the apostles' authority. Mm-hmm. So we do not have the books that the apostles themselves wrote. We don't have the exact manuscript yeah. that the apostle John wrote. We do not have the exact letters, the exact parchment with the same ink that Paul wrote on. So how can we trust what we do have? Yeah, we can trust it because it's what God has given us. Yeah, um, that's a great point. Th- th- some people would be very surprised to learn that we have First and Second Corinthians in our Bible. Now, it's clear actually just from reading First and Second yeah. Corinthians yep. that there are other letters that Paul there was wrote. Probably four. Yeah, so written it's, by it's, Paul. It's very likely that our First Corinthians is actually Second Corinthians, and our Second Corinthians is actually Fourth Corinthians. Mm-hmm. So it's it's entirely possible and even very likely that Paul wrote a letter to them. And then he wrote another one, and that's 1 Corinthians. Hmm. And then he wrote another letter to them, and then he wrote a fourth letter, and that's our 2 Corinthians. So we don't have all of Paul's letters. Right. And so some people get very nervous about that kind of thing. And what would, we, would it be Scripture if we found the, it the today? The lost letters of Paul or something yeah. would make a great novel. Those I are guess, fun but... <laughs> fun thoughts to have. And, you know, that's interesting. And, and actually, reading the letter, you can tell what the other ones were about, too. As I wrote to you in my other letter so forth yeah, and so on. Totally. And and so, again, we have what we need. We mm-hmm. have what we need for salvation, for godliness, and um, that's right there in Article 5 of the Belgian Confession, where we totally. accept the scriptures we have as holy and canonical. Um, this kind of conversation came up actually a lot with this popularity of a book called The Da Vinci Code um, <laughs> mm-hmm. several years ago. I think it was about probably like 15 years ago yeah, now. Like 2005 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and um, the Da Vinci Code asserted that the Council of Nicaea controlled 
the church for political reasons oh and rejected yeah. the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Peter and, and um, the Nag Hammadi books mm-hmm. of the Bible. Um, and the reason was entirely political and so forth and so on. And, and some people came out of reading the Da Vinci Code as if it was like a scholarly commentary on the mm-hmm. canon of scripture. But it was, um, it was just kind of a shoddy hit job, I would yeah. say, oh, yeah. on the canon. And um, maybe people would wonder, well, how is it decided what goes into the Bible? Well, um, there's several criteria. It needs to be apostolic in nature. That's really the big one, I would say, for the New Testament, yep. that somebody who was writing a book of the Bible either had to know Jesus personally or have direct first-person access to someone who knew Jesus personally. Mm-hmm. And so the book of Mark, it is believed, had Peter as the the access point. Yeah, like Mark that was Mark, not an apostle. Well, and he is mentioned in Paul's letters as somebody that Paul knew mm-hmm. and that um, Peter was doing ministry with. And so that's why one of the reasons we believe that the Gospel of Mark, which is very likely the first one written, mm-hmm. had Peter as its source. Um, Matthew, same kind of thing. Luke actually says, I've undertaken um, you know, the work of researching and writing these things in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. And yeah. Luke is mentioned uh, many times throughout the book of Acts, actually, as mm-hmm. well. Um, and so uh, they need to be reliable in that they were written. That means they had to have been written in the first century. Because mm-hmm. if somebody is going to know Christ or know someone who knew him, um, you pretty much couldn't have lived past about the year 90 or 100, especially with short expense, life expectancy at the time. Meanwhile, you have the Gospel of Thomas, which was very likely written in the 3rd century. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary. They were not apostolic in nature. Yeah. And just their name could fool you but they weren't written by those people. Yeah, they would be called be called pseudopigrapha, which basically yeah. means they are falsely named and falsely titled. Yeah. So you could say the Gospel of Peter, and you could say you could sign it that this is written by Peter. <laughs> sure, yeah. but that actually doesn't mean it was necessarily written by Peter. You know, I was actually reading a book last night, sort of in preparation for this, called "Who Chose the Gospels" by mm-hmm. uh, Charles Hill, which happened to be one of my professors, so that's why I have the book. Um, and he brings up how some people have said that in the early centuries of the church, gospels were reproducing like rabbits. Um, and he says, but actually, outside of the four gospels we have, there's only nine. Hmm. There's only nine gospels that uh, people have that were written in order to sort of represent Jesus, represent Jesus in, yeah. in different ways, and the church knew that these were not legitimate because they they noticed that how how come we only got this 100 or so years after yeah. all the other ones we've <laughs> we've had these other ones and then this is sort of the johnny come lately so the church knew that th- knew that this was not legitimate because well i wrote a letter over to a, f- a far far christian city and they've never heard of this letter or th- yeah. this gospel either. So there's a lot of contact where they, the church was able to talk to itself and say, nobody's ever heard of this letter. This should not be included. This is not legitimate. 
this has not been received anywhere. Yeah, and then the Council of Nicaea is influential, uh, to say the least, hmm. and uh, the particularly the scholar named Athanasius um, was very influential in, I, I believe it was a letter of Athanasius that actually contained yep. the first canon. Of 27 books, yeah. right. Bef- yeah. in, in the second century, in about 150, there was a a list of New Testament books that was yeah. compiled and actually concluded or included 22 of the 27 books. I forget what this is called. Hmm. It's a certain fragment and it contained a list. It contained 22 books and 22 of those books are in the New Testament. Um, and so over time, the church would then realize, oh, five more books have, have been written yeah. and have been accepted mm-hmm. from the very beginning from the apostles and so you can imagine without the internet, without being able to call up someone and ask, hey, do you have this book over in your city? Right. Um, it would take a while for the church to recognize which books were legitimate and which were not, which bore the stamp of divinity, which were clearly apostolic in mm-hmm. nature, and which were theologically true and were in accord with what Christians had been teaching mm-hmm. ever since Christ's uh, ascension. Uh, and so those were the, the the big markers of what would be defined as scripture. So actually, by the time that Athanasius writes this letter, which is 367 A.D., and it's not 325 or 381, which is yeah. when the Nicene, yeah, Nicene councils were convened, uh, everybody recognized that yes, those 27 books that Athanasius has listed, those are all books that we clearly think of as scripture. This was not making these books scripture. Yeah. This was not giving them authority. This was recognizing the authority that they contained because they were seen to be from the Lord's authority. Yeah. And so the Catholic Church will often say, well, the church creates the canon. Right. That's not true at all. Yeah, Article 5 of the Belgian Confession says exactly that, that the, hmm. we, we regard these as holy and canonical, not because the church calls them that. Yeah. It's not as though the church speaks into being what the canon is or should yeah. be or should be outside of it, but because it is true, and I believe one of the reasons given is um, it's proved true. Uh, it's it's proved true as uh, that what... What happens in the Bible mm-hmm. um, is truth, yeah. Um, but also because it is confirmed as true within the hearts of of the believer as well. That God gives us the Spirit, like yeah, in, the Spirit uh, authenticates. In First John, it says um, you don't need anyone to be your teacher. And there's a the, the reference there is to the work and the anointing of the Spirit of God, who confirms in our hearts and minds that His Word is true. Yep. So maybe in closing. What I want to leave people with is the attitude that one should have concerning the Bible. Um, Mm, Another thing that that could be brought up is a New Testament versus the entirety of the Bible. So like the Gideon's ministry at times will distribute New Testaments plus Psalms and Proverbs. And um, some people would then look at the end of Revelation 22 and say, if anybody adds or removes anything from this book, let the plagues be uh, just in this book uh, be applied to them. And so they would say, hmm. that's a removal of a big part of God's Word. And generally, especially in our American affluent context, I would be very wary of people who just have their New Testament. Um, it's also 
kind of a trend right now in the evangelical world to be red letter Christians, where the words of Jesus hold a different kind of special authority than the rest of the Bible. (laughs) And um, one pastor I once heard said, corrected that very easily. He said, I have have this great translation of the Bible where all the words of Jesus are in red and all the words of the Holy Spirit are in black. And and so I I, I kind of like that that he says that because it's it's all God's word. It shows yeah. that that it's it's yes, these are the words that we believe Jesus said. Yeah, yeah. Um meanwhile, all the rest of it is true too. And so God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is speaking through the word. Maybe Jesus' words should be embossed with a red background to the words. Yeah. With a black background to the words, so it's red right. and black. Yeah, red and black. <laughs> and so that way the Spirit is still at work in uh, preserving those words. But anyways, um, then would I go so far as to say that these New Testament translations are a terrible thing? No. So in my own yeah. sermon on, um, on Sunday, we had an example where the Kimyal people of Indonesia had received the New Testament in their language, and they were so happy, they were so grateful that finally they have a translation of the Word of God mm. in their own hands. Um, the translational purist would say, nope, not good enough, not until... It's not the whole Bible. Not until they get the Old Testament too. Yeah. But <clears throat> I certainly would say <laughs> these people need the gospel just like a person, a peasant living in Cyrene in the year 150 would have had access to only probably only one or two books of the New Testament yeah. in their church. And um, a lot of maybe, them couldn't read. Yeah, they couldn't read. And they would have just had a little part of maybe Paul's letter that had been copied and, and given to them. And they had a, a fraction of yeah. what we have now today, but it was good enough for God to use in bringing salvation to these people. Yeah, think about the criminal on the cross with Christ who yeah. who becomes, you could say, converted on the cross. He did not have a Bible. You think of Simon um, and the, or Philip, I mean, and the Ethiopian eunuch yeah, right. from uh, Acts 8. Yeah, he has the scroll of Isaiah. He, he Yeah, he, he had that, but it wasn't the whole scripture, but, but he had enough. Um, and, you can, and you can think of anyone else in the New Testament yeah. who would have heard the gospel and not been given a Bible. Did they not know what Christianity was? No, they they very much could have known it. Mm-hmm. And actually, for the first hundred, few hundred years, um, and really even down through the ages up until the printing press, and even after that, most average Christians did not have a personal Bible. Yeah. Um, even, I and would say... they were say, true Christians. Even like my grandparents' generation... Um, they had the family Bible, hmm. um, but it was, from what I perceive, less common that like each person in the family would have their own Bible. Yeah, I mean, um, I actually have my mother's, fa- like my mom's family Bible from when she was growing up, and the thing is tattered and torn, and it's very well used because it was like their family Bible, hmm. and so even there, the, I would say the accessibility. That we have, I mean, everyone's got it on their phone now, and you've yeah. got eight translations right on your phone whenever you want them. Yeah. I mean, we have uh, an embarrassment of riches in terms oh, yeah. of our access to God's Word, even after the printing press and after the Reformation happened. Um, we have uh, so much of God's Word that 
I would say it shouldn't make us scoff at the Kimyal people in Indonesia hmm. that they only have their New Testament. Um, however, I, I do think that means we should all embrace the whole Bible, of course. The pre- pastors should preach from the whole Bible. As, yeah. um, if pastors are listening to this and you haven't heard the Old Testament or if you haven't heard uh, from the Gospels or from Paul's letters for a couple years, well, it would be time to get those out and <laughs> preach from them. Um, because yeah, all of it is true and good and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so um, that that's kind of the attitude that I would want people to have in approaching the Scriptures. Yes, there are going to be words that are different between the ESV and NIV and um, New American Standard Bible, um, but hopefully we would approach it with thanksgiving that God would be speaking to us um, even more so Hmm. than we would be approaching it with a critical eye and a sort of built-in suspicion um, about, you know, every every word that's in there. Yeah, it's good to open up a few translations and see where they are similar and where they maybe are different in various ways, and knowing that they are all probably getting at the truth in a very helpful way. And you can learn by reading them in unison yeah. uh, what the originals said. And and really the point of this conversation and, and of my sermon was to make people hungry for reading God's Word, um, to know how good it is, to know how blessed we are, to have it in our own language, and really just to thank God that we have the Bible. It's an amazing gift. Amen. And... Um, it's it perhaps it can be improved in in certain ways and in future translations which will perhaps be better than the ones we have now hmm. but uh for right now we have everything we need in his word for faith and godliness so thank you so much for listening hopefully yeah. that helped people understand a little bit more of the history of the bible and um the translations that you have in your house or on your phone um so i would encourage folks to Take that attitude that Don Carson mentioned of being open-minded but not empty-headed. Be, uh, be searching for the truth, be hungry for the truth, and when you encounter that truth, to receive it with thanksgiving. So thank you so much for listening to totally. this episode of Reform Podmatic. Spread the word. If it's something that's <laughs> been a blessing to you, uh, please share about it on Facebook or Instagram or uh, you know maybe link someone to your Spotify or iTunes um, link and spread the word a little bit. We have gotten great listenership so far, but it's always a good thing if that can spread because um, our intention is to build your faith to help you know the living God more fully um, and just as today to help you know his word a little bit more as well. So thank you for listening and uh, have a great rest of your day. Yep, thanks guys. See ya. Bye.